0: I am a fan of short introductions because I like to hear from the person. So I'm just going to say at the beginning something I believe is profoundly true that we get to hear from, in my opinion, the world's leading scholar on divine violence in the Old Testament. Please welcome Eric Seivert. I was waiting for you to introduce somebody else. (laughs) Wow, thank you. Well, it's so good to be with you all this morning. Um, I'm really looking forward to this time together. Um, I just wanna say a quick word of thanks to Tom Ord for making this a possibility for me to share some of my thoughts with you. Um, Dinner on Monday, a number of you shared how influential Tom Ord has been um, in your own theological journeys, and that certainly has been true of me as well. So thank you, Tom, for all that you're doing and for putting this conference together. So in you know, such a beautiful setting like this, I feel like I should be talking about some cheery topic, like <laughs> how we can experience God in the mountains or how we can see God's beautiful handiwork in the wildflowers. But instead, I come to you with a message titled, The Lord Will Take Delight in Bringing You to Ruin and Destruction. <laughs> <laughs> um, you might be thinking, like, well, what the heck? did this guy get the memo, right? Um, it certainly doesn't sound very inviting, but stick with me. Um, While I am initially going to focus on the problem, my ultimate goal is to offer a solution, one that I hope will be helpful to you as you navigate um, some of the difference between what the Bible says about God and what I suspect uh, many of you actually believe about God. So that said, let's go ahead and dive in. No matter how you quantify it, God is responsible for a lot of violence in the pages of the Old Testament. According to Professor Raymond Schwager, more than 1,000 passages, Old Testament passages, emphasize God's anger, violence, and vengeance, and more than 100 additional passages contain God's commands to kill others. So in these 1,100 passages, God drowns humanity, sends plagues, hardens hearts, instigates war, and even commands genocide, although some scholars dispute that designation. So here's just a brief sampling. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the inhabitants of the cities. Genesis 19:24 and 25. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. There was a loud cry in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Exodus 12, 29 and 30. But as for the towns of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them, just as the Lord your God has commanded. Deuteronomy 20:16 and 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. 1 Samuel 15:2 and 3. Passages like these could be multiplied many times over. Over and over again, the Old Testament emphasizes God's participation in violence and killing. It's a major theme, something that occurs with disturbing frequency and ferocity. As Professor Peter Enns puts it, quote, "'God killing people isn't a last-ditch measure "'of an otherwise patient deity. "'It's the go-to punishment for disobedience. "'To put a fine point on it, this God is flat-out terrifying he comes across as a perennially hacked-off warrior god, more Megatron than Heavenly Father. End quote. One way this is evident is by observing the number of people God kills in the Old Testament. According to Steve Wells, who has done math, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God has killed or sanctioned the killing of nearly 2.5 million people. But that 2.5 million only includes casualties that are actually reported in the text. If you included all the people who perished in the flood, or in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, or in any number of other stories that don't contain body accounts, Wells estimates that number would be 10 times higher. Now, understandably, all this death and destruction is terribly troubling to many Christian readers, including a number of my students. So here's how one of my former students expressed their concern in a written assignment. The student writes, a lot of times I wonder why God in the Old Testament is so dissimilar to God in the New Testament. It seems as if in the Old Testament he is very vengeful and angry with those who disobey him. But in the New Testament, he forgives everyone who believes rather than punishing them. It just seems crazy how radical God tends to be in the Old Testament. He had people killed and punished in horrible ways. Being raised to think that the words God and love are interchangeable seem strange if one was only to read the Old Testament, end quote. While I think the student oversimplifies things a bit and seems unaware of the many positive portrayals of God in the Old Testament, the point remains, a lot of God's behavior in the Old Testament doesn't look very loving. And that, I submit, is perhaps the single biggest problem for open and relational thinkers. More on that in a moment. Now, if someone were to ask me to identify the central concept of open and relational theology, I would say that it is the idea that God is love. Now, it's a little intimidating to say that in a room full of open and relational thinkers, so maybe you can challenge me on that later. I am, after all, a person who works in biblical studies. Now, I'm not a theological specialist. But from where I stand, it seems to me that, in some sense, everything revolves around this central conviction. Um, in his recent book, Open and Relational Theology, Tom Orr puts it this way. God's unchanging nature is love. Love is what God does. Love comes logically first among the divine attributes. God cannot not love. Open and relational theology says God must love, end quote. Everything we know about who God is and what God's, God does is judged by the logic of love. Again, to quote Tom Ord, open and relational theology uses the logic of love to make sense of what God can and can't do. Of course, this begs the question, what is love now just true moment of confession i confess i was not at tom's presentation yesterday morning Um, my wife and i skipped out for a longer hike somewhere else so um and part of the hike included a section in which we were on something called the devil's staircase so so maybe i've really missed missed this um and you probably already know this but um, as or defines it to love is to act intentionally in relational response to god and others to promote overall well-being I'm especially interested in the final part of that definition, this notion that love promotes overall well-being. So if God is love, that means God is always working to promote the well-being of all life. But how in the world does God's violent behavior in the Old Testament do that? How does giving one man's wives to another man so he can rape them in public view promote the overall well-being of the women who are sexually assaulted, 2 Samuel 12, 11. How does commanding and participating in wholesale slaughter, the slaughter of the Canaanites, promote the overall well-being of the men, women, soldiers, civilians, toddlers, and infants who are now dead? Deuteronomy 7.2. Or is it loving to strike an innocent child with a terminal illness? Or to order a woman to submit, to return and submit to an abuser? Or to send wild animals to kill people who don't worship God the right way? Yet the Old Testament claims God does all these things and more. If that's true then this God looks nothing like the loving God beautifully described by open and relational thinkers. Rather than promoting overall well-being, God's violent behavior in the Old Testament does enormous harm. In fact, it's difficult to conceive of violence without talking about harm, and it's embedded in my own definition of violence that you can see on the handout. If love is about promoting overall well-being, and violence involves doing harm, it would seem that violence and love are mutually exclusive. Love looks out for the interest of others. It serves. Violence looks out for the interest of the perpetrator. It dominates. Love is uncontrolling and self-giving, to borrow Ordian language. Violence takes what it wants by force. If violence and love are mutually exclusive, then a violent God, by definition, cannot also be a loving God. So what are we to do? Well, three possibilities immediately present themselves. We can change our view of the Bible, we can change our view of God, or we can change the way we interpret violent verses. So first, you could simply reject the Old Testament. If you don't think the Old Testament's violent portrayals of God accurately reflect what God is like, you could simply disregard that part of the Bible as authoritative. As John Bright, a prominent Old Testament scholar from another generation once wrote, the Old Testament is a problem because it is in the Bible. (laughs) <laughs> and because of what the church declares the Bible to be. If the Old Testament were not in the Bible, it would occasion the Christian no problem whatever, end quote. When you reject the Old Testament and deny its authority, you are no longer beholden to its claims about God. You can take them or leave them. This does solve the problem, but it comes at a very high price. Rejecting the Old Testament means rejecting a sacred collection of texts that has sustained the faith of Christian and Jewish and Jews for centuries, texts that I believe are full of wisdom and insight, a treasure trove for theological reflection and spiritual edification. For many, jettisoning the, jettisoning the entire Old Testament feels extreme. It's like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, too much is lost by such an action. When a Christian named Marcion tried to do this, In the second century CE, things did not go well for him. Uh, The church rejected his proposal and branded him a heretic. But rather than adjusting our view of scripture, maybe what we should do is adjust our view of God. Maybe there's nothing wrong with the Bible after all. Maybe what's wrong is our insistence that God is essentially loving. Maybe, just maybe, Tom Ord and his ilk have misled us. Maybe they have taken us down a theologically dubious path. (laughs) There you go. Maybe they have misconstrued the true nature of God. Perhaps we need to modify, dare I even say, enlarge our view of God's character to make room for both goodness and evil. Why? Because that's how the Bible portrays God. Sure, God is loving and gracious at times, but other times God behaves like an SOB who will exterminate you in a heartbeat. Maybe we have overemphasized God's love because that's what we want to see and have failed to recognize other less desirable attributes of God in the Bible because we don't wanna think about God that way. This is basically what Mark Roncase argues in his book, Raw Revelation, the Bible they never tell you about. He writes, quote, how can we claim to comprehend the Bible when it says God is love, but then when God appears deceptive, evil, and cruel, we say, no, God is not really those things, End quote. So in an effort to be faithful to the way God is portrayed in the Bible, here's what Roncase says about his beliefs. And I'm quoting here, for me, the paradoxical God of Scripture, kind and cruel, good and genocidal, present and absent, is the true nature of the God of the universe. God is not all good, powerful, holy, and loving. He's partly those things, and partly their opposite, end quote. Now, as you might imagine, most Christians are not particularly enamored with this view, In the same way that most people don't want to admit that there's something wrong with their beloved Bible, they don't want to concede that the God they worship is sometimes mean-spirited, malicious, and maniacal. For that reason, many believers turn to a third option, one that neither critiques the Old Testament nor accuses God of behaving badly. They attempt to defend God's behavior in the Bible. They do so by declaring that God's violent behavior is consistent with the actions of a loving God. And efforts to defend God's violent behavior in Scripture are many and varied. claim that God was justified in killing people as punishment for their sin. As the argument goes, what should surprise us, they say, is not that God kills people, since we are all sinners who deserve death, a very dubious theological claim in my opinion. Um, What should surprise us, they say, is that God allows any of us to live. When God orders Israelites to kill wicked Canaanites or annihilate evil Amalekites, these people are simply getting what they deserve. Others defend God's behavior by appealing to some greater good. They say you know, God needed, for example, to wipe out the Canaanites so that Israel's religious purity would remain intact. Keeping Israel pure was important because the Messiah would come through Israel and it was the Messiah who would save the world. I mean, what could be a greater good than that? So yes, it was loving to exterminate the entire Canaanite population. Others appeal to mystery, claiming that God's ways are higher than ours. We're finite beings, we can't see the big picture. We don't know the whole story. We just have to trust that whatever God does is right because God is the one doing it. Approaches like these are especially popular among theologically conservative scholars and interpreters. And as you might have guessed, um, I don't find any of these three approaches particularly compelling. I don't think we should chuck the Old Testament. I'd be out of a job if we did. (laughs) Uh, Nor do I believe that God is evil or behaves unethically or immorally. And I am absolutely convinced it is a fool's errand to try to defend God's violent behavior in the Old Testament and call it loving. So where does that leave us? Um, What should open and relational theologians do with the violent Old Testament portrayals of God? So here's my proposal in a nutshell. We should deconstruct them. I believe the only adequate way to address all the problems these images raise is, is to demonstrate that God, the living God, does not behave violently, biblical text notwithstanding. There are several things that can help us in this regard. and I want to take a little time to explore um, several actions we can take, or maybe better said, postures we can adopt that can help us accomplish this. So first, I think it's essential to stress the human origins of the Bible. Whatever else we say about this book, we should acknowledge that practically speaking, practically speaking, these texts came from people, not God. They were written redacted and compiled by human beings, folks not all that unlike you and me. These individuals or biblical authors as we sometimes call them, wrote these texts for all sorts of reasons, to make sense of national tragedies like the exile, to legitimate kings like Solomon, to build a sense of national identity, to help people worship, to encourage people to live godly lives and so forth. People controlled the formation of the Bible. They decided what would be included in these texts they made choices about how they would portray God and others. There are human fingerprints all over the biblical text. The Bible did not fall from the sky on golden tablets in upstate New York, or just west of the Tetons for that matter. Um, and while all Christians acknowledge some degree of human involvement in producing the Bible, many emphasize, and I would argue overemphasize God's role in the process. Many people believe God exercised a high degree of control over the formation of the Bible, especially over the particular content of the Bible. They believe God ensured that human authors accurately conveyed the truth about God and God's involvement in the events they described. This often leads them to regard the Bible as inerrant or infallible. Because of that, they are convinced that what they read in the pages of Scripture is absolutely trustworthy and reliable. The Bible is, to their way of thinking, divine revelation. But traditional views of inspiration and biblical authority like these make it well nigh impossible to question the validity of violent biblical portrayals of God. They also perpetuate misguided assumptions about the nature of scripture itself, namely that biblical texts are always historically reliable and that all portrayals of God are theologically trustworthy. While I understand the desire to to view the Bible this way, it simply does not correspond to the evidence at hand. Either the external manuscript evidence or the internal witness of the Bible itself and all of its amazing wildness, diversity, and contradiction. Rather than viewing God as an over-involved editor who micromanaged the process, it is much more accurate to understand the formation of biblical text as a human endeavor, or a human product, as Marcus Borg puts it. That does not mean God was totally uninvolved in the process, as Borg suggests. But in keeping with one of the core tenets of open and relational theology, it suggests that God did not control the process. I realize this is hard for many believers to accept. They are so convinced that the Bible is perfect, or nearly so, that they go to great lengths to defend it. Brad Jerzek puts it this way, evangelicals are more committed to defending the integrity and perfection of the Bible than defending the integrity and perfection of God. We would rather concede that God is the author of genocide than concede that the Bible is wrong for saying so. We would rather waste our time trying to defend God's killing sprees as morally justifiable than admitting the textual portrayal is inaccurate." So here's the cold hard truth. It is impossible to have both an inerrant Bible and a morally perfect God. And so what I'm proposing is that it's our view of scripture that needs to change, not our view of God. But that's only possible when we recognize and embrace the very human origins of the Bible. Another way to deconstruct violent views of God is to contextualize them. Um, people across the ancient Near East believe that God punished individuals, communities, and even entire countries by sending illness, natural disasters, and historical catastrophes. They believe the gods not only engaged in warfare, but were ultimately responsible for victory and defeat in war. Um, This is easily demonstrated with numerous texts and inscriptions across the ancient world. The violent nature of the gods was a theological given, unquestioned and embraced by people everywhere. Since Israel was part and parcel of that environment, it's unsurprising to discover that Israel conceived of God in similar ways. This is a very important point, one that I think has huge ramifications for how we assess Old Testament portrayals of God. It suggests that rather than revealing something unique about God's characters, these violent portrayals may simply reflect the historical milieu of which they were a part. In other words, they say more about the cultural context from which they emerged than they do about the nature of God. In short, it's likely that Israel portrayed God behaving violently because that's what everyone else in the ancient world did. Third, if we hope to challenge violent views of God, it is imperative that it is imperative to acknowledge that God did not say or do everything the Old Testament claims. I think there are many pieces of evidence that point in this direction. We've already touched on one of these, the fact that Israel's violent portrayals are culturally conditioned. So let me just briefly mention two others here. First, archaeology has demonstrated rather conclusively that some stories in the Bible never actually happened. For example, critical biblical scholars no longer believe the Israelites came to possess the land in the way described in Joshua 6 through 11. There was no pan-Israelite military takeover of major Canaanite cities. Instead, many of the earliest Israelites were themselves displaced Canaanites who who were joined by other people moving around during a time of great migration across the Mediterranean world. As American archeologist Bill Deaver says, quote, there is little that we can salvage from Joshua's stories of the rapid wholesale destruction of Canaanite cities and the annihilation of the local population. It simply did not happen. The archeological evidence is indisputable, End quote. So to give you just a small sampling of that evidence, I would direct your attention for a moment to the cities of Jericho and Ai, the first two cities reportedly conquered by invading Israelites. Both of these cities have been identified and excavated by archeologists, but neither fits the narrative of Joshua six through 11 very well. Archaeologists have discovered that Jericho and I were uninhabited at the time the Israelites supposedly destroyed them. In fact, I had been uninhabited for about a 1,000 years. If there was nobody living in these cities, it stands to reason that God never handed Jericho over to Joshua, as it says in Joshua 6, 2, or told Joshua to do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, as it says in Joshua 8, verse 2. Since these violent portrayals of God have no basis in historical reality, we are not bound to accept the view of God they promote. A second reason to acknowledge that God did not say or do everything the Old Testament claims relates to the nature of ancient historiography. It is well known that ancient ancient historiographers frequently provided theological explanations for events both large and small. For example, the Old Testament uh, portrays God routinely directing human affairs by doing such things as opening and closing wombs, blessing human obedience with success and material prosperity, And punishing human sinfulness through famines, plagues, and natural disasters. Yet many of these theological assumptions differ dramatically from our own. For example, most Christians I know would be very reluctant to say that COVID-19, which has killed over 6 million people worldwide, is an act of divine punishment. But that is clearly how a plague like this would have been interpreted in the ancient world. Just because a biblical writer claims God caused some outbreak or cataclysmic act of destruction doesn't mean God actually did. It may simply reflect a worldview assumption we no longer accept as valid. I think recognizing this is a key component to deconstructing violent views of God in the Old Testament. Fourth, to extend this point a bit further, um, open and relational theologians wishing to use the Old Testament to reflect on the nature and character of God must be prepared to distinguish between the textual God And the actual God, to borrow language from Terry Fredheim. The textual God is just that, words on a page, whereas the actual God is the living word, or to put it another way, the textual God is a literary representation or series of representations in the Bible, whereas the actual God is is the living reality, the one to whom our worship is directed. Many Christians assume they can simply open the Bible, read what it says about God, and then move directly from the textual God To the actual God, but things are far more complicated than that. Sometimes the Bible reveals God's character, but sometimes it distorts it. If we want to think rightly about God, to borrow words from A.W. Tozer, we need to do the hard work of figuring out which portrayals reveal God's character, and in what ways, and which do not. The need to distinguish between the textual and actual God is actually built into the very fabric of Scripture itself. Even a cursory reading of the Old Testament reveals that some portrayals of God stand in stark contrast with others. For example, one passage claims that God punishes children for the iniquity of their parents, while another emphatically states children will not suffer for the iniquity of their parents. One passage declares God to be gracious and merciful, while another says God hardens people's hearts for the express purpose of allowing them to be slaughtered without mercy competing and contrasting views of God are canonized in the pages of the Old Testament. This contrast becomes even more striking when images of God in the Old Testament are compared to images of God in the New. And so unless we're willing to concede that, you know, God's character is utterly inconsistent, these diverse assertions about God cannot all be accurate. We, they force us to make choices about what God is really like. Successfully differentiating between the textual and actual God requires us to develop a principled interpretive approach that helps us determine what is reliable and what is not without simply picking and choosing those images that we like and setting aside those that we are not so fond of. And this leads me to a final suggestion for how to go about this work of deconstructing violent views of God. We can use the God Jesus reveals to evaluate, challenge, and ultimately critique violent portrayals of God in the old Testament. Now, since I have roots in the Anabaptist tradition of the Christian faith, a principled interpretive approach that is faithful to my own heritage involves using a Christocentric hermeneutic or Christ-centered method of interpretation, which privileges the life and teachings of Jesus for interpreting scripture. This interpretive approach, at least as I develop it, is based on three premises. So if you don't like where this approach goes, you can sort of critique one of those premises and it will kind of unravel. My first premise is that God's moral character is most clearly and completely revealed through the person of Jesus. When I speak about God's moral character, I'm talking about the way that God behaves toward people and creation. I'm not talking about things like God's eternal nature or God's you know, omnipresence. I'm talking about how God relates to humanity and creation and justice, mercy, goodness, and love. To put the premise most simply, to see Jesus, is to see God. If you want to know what God looks like, how God behaves, then look at Jesus. The New Testament writers describe Jesus as, quote, the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, the exact imprint of God's very being, Hebrews 1.3. The one that I perhaps find most intriguing is when Philip asked Jesus to, you know, show us the Father. And Jesus replies, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And you still do not know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To see Jesus is to see God, which of course begs the question, well, what kind of God does Jesus reveal? Which brings me to a second premise. My second premise is that Jesus reveals a God of love, one who heals rather than harms, is kind rather than cruel, forgives rather than retaliates, and behaves nonviolently rather than violently. The God Jesus reveals shares both similarities and dissimilarities with portrayals of God in the Old Testament. Some of the most striking differences concern God's relation to violence. In Jesus, we see a God who absorbs violence rather than perpetuates it, a God who loves enemies rather than kills them, a God who is characterized by grace rather than wrath. The God Jesus reveals overcomes evil by the power of suffering love, not by the power of the sword. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that Jesus came preaching some brand new view of God that was absent from the Old Testament or from Israel's past. Rather, I'm arguing that Jesus was intentionally selective about which images he endorsed and which images he did not. Jesus embraced and promoted views of God in the Old Testament that reflected God's love, compassion, and mercy, while at the same time largely ignoring those which portray God's wrath, violence, and retribution. Apparently, Jesus believed some Old Testament portrayals were serviceable and some were not. We get a taste of this at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus is in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he takes the scroll of Isaiah and reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is striking about this reading is that Jesus stops mid-sentence. The verse goes on to speak about the day of vengeance of our God, but Jesus stops just prior to the prophetic punchline, as C.S. Coles puts it. The part that Jesus leaves out refers to the much-anticipated day of the Lord when Israel believed God would intervene to settle scores and subdue their enemies by whatever means necessary. Jesus apparently had a rather different view of God's attitude toward Israel's enemies and sinners generally than many Old Testament Testament passages would suggest. The Old Testament routinely portrays God as being hostile toward the wicked and those who do evil. In Zephaniah 1.3, God is depicted as one who will make the wicked stumble. And in Psalm 3:7, God is one who is said to break the teeth of the wicked. Jesus suggests precisely the opposite. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes God as one who is, quote, kind to the ungrateful and wicked, Luke 6-35. And Jesus commands his followers to love enemies, not because it's just some great moral philosophy, but because that's what God does. We are a long way here. It's a long way from killing Canaanites and Amalekites. Jesus also challenges violent views views of God rooted in Israel's beliefs about divine reward and punishment. Despite the Old Testament's insistence that God punishes sinners and rewards the righteous, look at Deuteronomy 28 sometime, an entire chapter that makes that point, Jesus seems to understand God's character quite differently, claiming that God extends goodness to everyone regardless of how they behave, Once again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. In other words, God gives good gifts to everyone indiscriminately. God is not nice to the righteous and mean to the wicked. God is kind to all, and God's gracious provisions are lavished on everyone, regardless of how worthy or unworthy they might be. While it's clear that Jesus builds his view of God from the Old Testament, as his strategic use of two Old Testament stories in Luke 4 illustrates, Jesus feels no compulsion to accept every portrayal he finds there. Rather, he uses the Old Testament images of God selectively, affirming some, distancing himself from others. Now, before proceeding, I want to just briefly respond to a few objections that people often raise at this point. Um, Probably the point that most that people become most uncomfortable with is this notion that Jesus was completely nonviolent. Um, so with respect to Jesus and violence, um, some point to the incident in the temple where Jesus overturns tables um, and according to John's version, uses a whip to drive out some animals. Doesn't that suggest Jesus was violent, they ask? I don't think so. As one of my colleagues likes to say, what was a body count? <laughs> people are not staggering out of the temple, bruised and bloodied, right? While his behavior certainly challenges sentimental perceptions of Jesus meek and mild, his actions are not violent. Disruptive, yes. Forceful, absolutely. Jesus' behavior is consistent with prophets of old who engaged in symbolic prophetic acts which dramatized the message they proclaimed. Others accuse Jesus of being violent because of his words in Matthew ten thirty four about not coming to bring peace but a sword. But here the context surely indicates these words are meant to be taken metaphorically. Jesus is simply talking about the divisions that appear in families when some family members decide to follow Jesus and others do not. In my estimation, attempts like these to describe Jesus as violent seem strained. I'm also not convinced that words of eschatological judgment in the Gospels undermine what I've been saying about the kind of God Jesus reveals. Though I don't have time to adequately respond to this concern, a few quick points are in order. First, numerous scholars have argued that pronouncements of eschatological judgment in the New Testament do not go back to the historical Jesus, but were attributed to him by much later Christian writers. If that's correct, it removes the objection entirely. Second, those who do believe these sayings originated with Jesus should bear a couple points in mind. For instance, Jesus often spoke using hyperbole and metaphor, and this certainly seems characteristic of his language about final judgment. I think we need to be careful not to take literally words meant to be understood symbolically. And whenever Jesus spoke about final judgment, it was always in the service of calling people to live faithfully here and now in the present. That was the purpose and focus of those sayings. Jesus was not giving his listeners futuristic and otherwise secretive information about the hereafter. Therefore, we should be extremely cautious about trying to use passages like these to define our view of God, considering they refer to a yet-to-happen, completely unique end-of-time event described in symbolic language. And my third and final premise, God's moral character is consistent throughout time. God is not merciful one day and malicious the next. Whatever God is like, God has always been like. God is like right now and God will always be like. The God Jesus reveals doesn't merely show us what God was like way back then in the first century. The God Jesus reveals shows us what God has always been like and will always be like. But if God's moral character is unchanging, then this revelation of God is key to knowing what God is like. Now, if you can accept those premises, um, it leads you to an important interpretive conclusion. Namely, the God Jesus reveals should be the standard or measuring rod by which the trustworthiness of all biblical portrayals of God are evaluated. So I like to tell my students, you know, I'm standing with Jesus, right? Jesus is my guide here. I'm not picking and choosing ones I like and setting aside those I don't. I'm 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 allowing Jesus to guide my thinking here. To quote C.S. Coles again, if ours is a Christ like God, then we can categorically affirm that God is not a destroyer. God does not engage in punitive, redemptive, or sacred violence. God does not proactively use death as an instrument of judgment. End quote. God doesn't murder Egyptian babies. God doesn't strike people with leprosy. God doesn't send poisonous snakes to kill grumbling Israelites. Literary portrayals of God in the Old Testament notwithstanding. Violent behavior is inconsistent with the God Jesus reveals and should not be allowed to color our view of God. Now, before leaving this point, um, let me just say I realize that using Jesus as a guide will not work for everyone, certainly not for those in the Jewish communities, but even for some Christians, this this will be a difficult uh, point. My larger point here is simply to say we need to have some kind of principled interpretive approach to help us navigate that distance between the textual God and the actual, actual God. There are other options out there. So where do we go from here? So before closing, I want to suggest a, a number of responses that are more practical that I think are congruent with the proposal I've been making. These are things I think all of us can do when talking about God in Scripture. So first, um, those of us who are serious about addressing the problems that violent portrayals of God create should stop defending God's bad behavior in the Bible, This, as you know, is precisely what many biblical scholars, theologians, and religious practitioners do. In fact, as suggested earlier, people will go to great lengths to defend God's character. And they'll use a variety of approaches to justify God's violent words and deeds. As I mentioned, they may say things like, the Canaanites were exceedingly wicked and they deserved to die, or killing the Canaanites was for some greater good. Whatever the reason or combination of reasons these individuals give, they are all working toward the same goal to defend God's character by justifying God's violence in the Old Testament. Now, I understand the motivation behind these efforts. I don't wanna believe in an unjust, immoral, vengeful deity any more than they do. But I think these attempts to defend God's violent behavior are unpersuasive and misguided. So maybe an analogy here will help at this point. Um, I'm the parent of three children, a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, and an eight-year-old. Um, thankfully, I can honestly say that I have never beaten or physically abused uh, any of them, though there have been times <laughs> when they have tested my commitment to nonviolence. Um, but let's imagine that later today I learn that I have been accused of abusing my children, and I've got up here in court to answer those charges. Since I'd be worried about the grave ramifications of that accusation, I would certainly secure a lawyer to help face these unwelcome legal challenges. Now, let's suppose my lawyer's strategy to exonerate me and to keep me out of jail is to present the best possible reasons for why I beat my children. My lawyer plans to tell the court that the reason I beat my children is because they are exceedingly bad and they deserve it. Um, And my lawyer also plans to argue that the reason I discipline my children so severely is for the greater good of society, that if I do this now, it will keep them from doing greater harm in the future. So using these and similar arguments, my lawyer plans to do everything possible put my alleged abusive behavior in the best possible light. Now, on level, I mean, I might appreciate my lawyer's strenuous efforts on my behalf, but it should be obvious that my lawyer's strategy is fundamentally flawed. Wouldn't it be better if my lawyer simply demonstrated that the charges against me are totally and completely false? Why try to put a positive spin on evil actions I never committed in the first place. Yet that is precisely what so many interpreters do when it comes to violent portrayals of God in the Old Testament, they tie themselves in knots trying to justify violent acts God never performed. Wouldn't it be better just to be upfront about that? If we wanna help people know what God is really like, it's counterproductive to defend God's violent behavior in the Bible. Second, if we are convinced that portrayals of God's slaying, slaughtering, and smiting do not reflect divine reality, We should be willing to go on record and say so. When we read stories in the Old Testament of a God who slaughters every firstborn child of Egypt, we say, this is not God. When the Old Testament claims that God commanded Israelites to kill Canaanites without mercy, we say, this is not God. When we encounter a prophet who declares that God will devour Israel like a lion and mangle them like a wild animal, we say, this is not God. Despite what the biblical text suggests, God is not a deadly lawgiver, an instant executioner, a mass murderer, a divine warrior, or a genocidal general. Whenever the Old Testament portrays God in these ways, it fundamentally misrepresents God's true nature and character, and we should have the courage and integrity to say so. In fact, I would go so far as to say that those of us who are religious educators, clergy members, mentors, spiritual directors, people of influence in our places of worship, We have a moral obligation to help people see God as clearly as possible. I mean, if we don't help people wrestle with these images and the problems they raise, who will? Some random blogger, fundamentalist pastor who has never seriously examined the issue, popular authors claiming to defend the authority of scripture by perpetuating violent and vile images of God, if not us, who? If we believe God is good and loving and we want people to know that, especially People who hold the Bible in high regard, it's important to deconstruct violent images of God in the Old Testament. But be warned, deconstructing violent views of God may come at a significant cost. People have paid a high price, personally and professionally, for being honest about their convictions regarding the nature of scripture and the nature of God. This is especially true in conservative religious contexts where people are required to adhere to a particular set of doctrinal beliefs or to affirm certain confessional statements as a requirement of their employment or membership. If you find yourself in one of those contexts and dare critique violent portrayals of God in the Old Testament, expect some pushback. Many people are not open to the kind of critique I am proposing. They do not want their violent image of God deconstructed and they have no interest in having their view of the Bible challenged. Some will call you a heretic. Others will accuse you of having undermined biblical authority. Don't let that stop you. The stakes are too high, and the issues are too important to capitulate to religious gatekeepers. Now, obviously, if speaking truthfully in this way might cause you to lose your job or your credentialing, you're going to have some hard choices to make, and I would certainly encourage you to walk carefully and to be wise and discerning in how you go about doing these things. Still, I would encourage you to do as much as you're able to disabuse people of these terribly problematic violent views of God. Third, at the same time we are deconstructing violent images of God, we should simultaneously be reconstructing an alternative view of God, one that is free from the violent cultural trappings that have distorted the truth about God's nature for so long. The good news here is that there are many passages in the Old Testament that provide excellent resources for doing so. Sometimes I, I, I have a little angst about a presentation like this because I, I worry that it might leave you with the impression that I think the Bible is just dripping with blood on every page. I mean, it's not quite that bad. right? right? There are other passages. Um, in fact, some of the most beautiful images of God we find in all of literature come from the Hebrew Bible. Um, just to give you a couple quick examples, um, speaking of Israel's early years, God says to the prophet Hosea, I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them, Hosea 11.4. And the psalmist speaks of God's great mercy and grace in Psalm 103. God does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. We could spend the rest of the conference talking about all the Old Testament passages that emphasize God's love, loyalty, commitment, and grace. We can and should emphasize these positive images and construct a more adequate and accurate view of God's character. Specifically, We should help people understand that God is fundamentally defined as love. The actual God is passionate about reconciliation and redemption, not revenge and retaliation. This is a God who's in the business of saving people, not slaying them. This God is characterized by self-giving, others empowering love as Tom Ord so helpfully expresses it. We should utilize all the resources at our disposal within our sacred texts and other disciplines to help people see this God as clearly and accurately as possible. Finally, after deconstructing violent portrayals of God in the Old Testament, it is important to find ways to use these passages constructively. This is especially true for those of us in the Christian tradition who affirm that scripture is useful. Although the discussion of how to do this is beyond the scope of the time I have this morning, I'm going to make just two quick suggestions. Um, first, rather than focusing on the divine violence in a particular passage, consider reading the story from the perspective of the victims of the text, the victims of the violence. Maybe look at the flood story from those outside the ark rather than from those inside. Or read the story of Jericho from those inside the city rather than from the Israelites coming in from the outside. Doing that um, helps us realize these people are human beings created in God's image and it cultivates compassion within us for others and that can be really useful. Or alternately you might explore various ways the church has misused Old Testament passages containing divine violence to justify wars, to steal land, to kill others. Hopefully reviewing the troubling legacy of passages like these will sort of stand as a warning to help us not go and do likewise. In conclusion, uh, violent Old Testament portrayals of God have been with us for a long time. Uh, they are not going away anytime soon. So while this does pose a problem for open and relational thinkers, I hope that some of what I've shared this morning um, will have given you some tools to mitigate that problem. While the textual God, the textual God, may delight in bringing you to ruin and destruction, the actual God never behaves that way. Instead, the actual God loves lavishly and invites us to do the same. So hopefully as we see God more clearly, we'll do just that. Thank you.